You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Colonel David Gardner. Colonel Gardner is the Commander of Operations Group at the Joint Readiness Training Center, commonly referred to as JRTC, in Fort Polk, Louisiana. Colonel Gardner, welcome to the show. Really happy to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to doing something like this. Yes, sir. So, sir, if you don't mind, I'd like to jump right in. Could you give a just a brief explanation of what your job is or your duties there at JRTC as the Commander of Operations Group? So, as the Commander of Operations Group, uh, I've had several organizations one of which is the observer, uh, observer coach trainers that most people associate with the training center. So all of the OCTs that will cover down on the unit's training here, all are under the command. Uh, I also have the opposing forces, the 509th Parachute Infantry. So they, they are part of the organization. I also have some advise and assist experts that work in the 353rd. On the one hand, they largely do security force assistance training for forces going anywhere from Afghanistan to some of the RAF missions. However, they also participate oftentimes in our decisive action rotations, uh, depending on which partner nations are participating as well. And then finally, I have the exercise and, and plans folks, which many of which are OCTs, but they not only write the rotations, uh, but they also replicate the 21st Infantry Division staff. So full disclosure, I did 16 rotations at JRTC, 14 of those being part of the Op 4 Geronimo, two as a rotating unit, but I'll admit I haven't been there since 1998. And I know a lot has changed considerably. And we have a lot of listeners that are both military and non-military. Could you give a brief description and maybe a few details about what is JRTC? Sure. So the the Joint Readiness Training Center has been here at Fort Polk uh, since 1993. The Combat Training Center program began uh, in the 80s for the U.S. Army. And I often say that I think the CTCs are the antidote to America's first battles. In fact, uh, George Marshall has a great quote from when he was the chief of staff. To paraphrase, he wanted forces to make their mistakes here in Louisiana prior to conducting combat operations. And so first and foremost, uh, we replicate a decisive action or any other type of of battlefield. But of course, right now, uh, we primarily in our 10 rotations a year focus on decisive action. Brigade combat teams, usually infantry brigade combat teams come here to train 10 times a year, as I said, and it's really the the capstone training uh, for those units. Now, it's not only the IBCTs that will come train here. We also have multifunction aviation battalion task forces. We have many echelon above brigade assets that will come here. Uh, For example, air defense artillery, signal units, intelligence units, many engineer units uh, that will come. And then we also have uh, many partners that love the experience of training here at JRTC with or integrated into either a stride or integrated into uh, the American units that are training down here. So uh, we've done a Canadian battalion uh, within the last year here. We have many companies uh, that have come here or are about to come here, and and some from South America, Africa, and then PACOM area as well. We try to replicate, again, as I say, a decisive action training environment here, and uh, we actually fall under the TRADOC decisive action training environment scenarios. And in fact, while we've done uh, the date caucuses many, many times, and for really our, our recent history, within the past year and going forward, we're doing a lot more of the date Pacific scenarios and the date Europe scenarios. In fact, our first date Europe scenario 
will be uh, two months from now in August when 2nd Brigade 101st comes down here. We want to create the uh, realistic training environment. So we've got many villages. We have uh, many civilians on the battlefield that we employ. We've got over 200,000 acres in the middle of uh, Louisiana here. And that puts us obviously smaller than NTC, which is almost 700,000 acres, but we still have a sizable chunk of land to do many, many things. And and we're a bit bigger than uh, JMRC, uh, which is about 40,000 acres, I think. Uh, And those are the three so-called DIRT uh, CTCs uh, for the U.S. Army, the the fourth CTC being the Mission Command Training Program out of Fort Leavenworth, which focuses typically on divisions, corps, and associated units. So when you say decisive action training environment or decisive action rotation, I mean, you're basically talking about the Army's shift to kind of away from counterinsurgency training and towards peer-on-peer or near-peer competitor. And there at the CTC, you're trying to replicate as much as you can, almost live force-on-force peer competitor. Is that right? That's correct. So, for example, in the Date Pacific scenario, they will face the Olvanen Army, uh, typically, which is a peer competitor. It's a brigade tactical group, peer capabilities in every warfighting function in every domain to include red air, cyber, uh, advanced signal capabilities and intelligence capabilities. Now, at the same time that we've gotten away from, I, I think, insurgency, Uh, What continues to make this stressful and a hybrid environment is we still have many criminal elements. We still have special purpose forces that operate in and around. And in some rotations, depending on the scenario, uh, we may see the enemy employing surrogate forces. So similar to insurgency, but again, obviously for a different purpose. Uh, So tactics may feel similar in some cases, but the main threat here is really a peer enemy uh, that you're facing in the attack and uh, defend type tasks that uh, are part of a brigade's medal. And for those listeners who haven't had the the pleasure of deploying to Fort Polk, Louisiana, what's the terrain like? Is it swamps, heavy woods, open terrain? So that's it's a great question because the physical terrain is really marked by a lot of wooded areas and many swampy areas. There's also a pretty low water table and many, many streams, which really can canalize you along some of the high-speed avenues of approach. So there's low water crossings over streams that, that frankly will prevent any of your mounted movement for sure and, and severely degrade even your dismounted movement many, many times. There are, though, some open areas and there is the ability, I believe, to develop engagement areas which really place the infantry at an advantage against armored formations uh, where you can position AT weapons, particularly the non-wire guided, so Javelin, Carl Gustavs, etc., cetera, uh, with some great effect against the enemy. We often uh, see challenges to attack aviation in this type of terrain because it is very wooded, but some of the better units that are able to do man and unman teaming and use UAS uh, to take advantage of things like top-down attack into those wooded areas can be very, very successful. But it is largely... A, uh, a restricted type area to large armored formations, despite a few very key open areas. Oh, and hot. I should say it's it's uh, very hot and humid, particularly uh, in the months of June, which we're in right now. Yes, sir. I think the worst cases of prickly heat I've ever gotten were thanks to Louisiana. So would you say it's mainly, though, out of our three formations, you know, infantry, brigade, striker brigade, armor brigade, it's mainly an infantry brigade CTC? It is the the one that uh, Forces Command has targeted for the infantry brigade combat teams, uh, but we are doing more and more, to your point, with strikers. And almost every infantry brigade combat team that comes here will have a company team uh, made up of various slants of, of Bradley's 
and M1 Abrams tanks, but this is largely infantry terrain. And this is the place where the IBCTs come for their final uh, training event within their training plans. And I actually love your analogy of the America's first battle and you know, hearken to General Mattis's 25 bloodless battles that he wanted from his close combat lethality task force. But you know, this is a urban warfare podcast. So I want to dive into you know, what type of urban terrain is represented at JRTC. I mean, I remember some from when I was there. Of course, lots changed, a lot's been built. Could you give us a kind of a brief description of what type of urban terrain you replicate and what type of urban operations training will the infantry brigades get when they visit JRTC? I think that's that's a great question. And to your point, what we're focused on here, uh, we, we probably have just under 20 villages and towns, what I, what I would say call urban areas. Those can vary from 12 to 65 buildings, anywhere from 10 to 35 acres. And of course, within them, we do try to replicate fire stations and police stations, post office, small shops, residences. And then uh, what we've increasingly tried to do is, is give different feels to them. Obviously, through our coin years, uh, many of them were built to feel more Middle Eastern, but we're actually starting to wrap them a bit differently, to lay them out a bit differently. And what I think you'll now find is some more areas here in the near future, and even some currently, that I think will be familiar to Europe in terms of smaller alleyways, a central sort of city square type area with sprawl. The two largest areas we have here, of course, are Shugart Gordon and Dar Alam, and then what we call Objective Cougar, which is up in the live fire area. So I, I definitely remember Shugart Gordon and had some pretty crazy battles, especially in the tunnels of Shugart Gordon. Could you give us more detail about those two big sites? Not that I'm focused on the biggest ones, but for more, I think, large-scale operations, I, I would think that those large-scale urban sites are probably see more of the large formation urban operations. Yeah, I think every brigade that comes down here will experience either Dar Alam or Shugart Gordon or both. And of course, we are starting to transition the names uh, yet again. So in the date caucuses, for example, Shugart Gordon that you and I know it as from years back is is now Sangari. And in the date Pacific, for example, it's Serangola. So many of these places have different names. But starting with the Shugart Gordon area, two distinct districts. The main district has 28 cement block buildings, and they range in size from single story sort of schoolhouse up to a three story government building. Then we have a secondary district associated with 11 single and two story containerized buildings. And then there's a very simple sort of entryway with a narrow two-lane traffic and a traffic circle that controls the entrance to the city. It's got underground tunnel system that connects several of the buildings. And then we typically do force-on-force blank fire there, but we can do some live fire training there using the short-range training ammunition. And then we do have the ability for snipers in their live fire as well. And so that's uh, Shugart Gordon. To my point earlier, uh, what many people may know is Ambush Alley. Uh, we've actually wrapped that a bit differently. And so I think the colors of the buildings and the style starts to make you feel a little bit more like a Europe type area before you get into the main city center of, uh, of the Sugar Gordon area. The second one is Dar Alam, and that's actually in the southwestern corner of Geronimo Drop Zone, which many are familiar down here. That's got 27 uh, cement block buildings, and it ha- it's covers about 22 acres. And then these buildings, again, range from a single story to three stories. There's a road infrastructure with an overpass and traffic circle. We can, again, do force on force there and some, and some limited live fire. And then the last thing I'll mention is, is our live fire area, which, again, has upwards of 30 buildings or so in some of the larger ones, which is fully live fire for really all calibers of, of munitions uh, up into some small indirect fire and, and certainly the short range 
uh, training round. But most people will experience Dar Alam and Shugart Gordon. So would you call these mock cities or mock villages? I think they're they're really uh, mock villages to, to to small towns. You know, depending on what area you're in and what you think 65 buildings are, I, I would probably say uh, up to small town. I think what makes them particularly challenging is just the key terrain that winds up being around them. Some of, to your earlier question, the swamps that may surround them, the large open areas. And so it's not necessarily just the size of the of the towns, but the terrain that they may dominate. So in order to be considered urban terrain, according to our own doctrine, it has to have physical structures on top of natural structure. It has to have urban infrastructure and a population. So, And I know during rotations, you represent the population in a certain number, but could you give us an example of either Shugar Gordon or Dar Alam, how you replicate both the population and any urban infrastructure? So a couple of things I, I guess I would say is, so we've, we've got a, a variety of role players uh, that we employ here and, and a typical decisive action rotation uh, may have uh, up to around 200 role players. Uh, when we've done some other rotations, we've gone up to approximately 500. But again, that's goes back to what the training objectives are for the units that are coming here to train. And then the general type role players will create masses and crowds that soldiers need to deal with. There's also, we do have some that employ special skill role players, so mayors, police chiefs, governors. And then oftentimes uh, we do get civilians on the battlefield that will either represent local governance or they might be U.S., other government agencies. And and oftentimes uh, those are uh, retired federal employees, uh, State Department, et cetera, that are employed by the contract that helps us replicate civilians on the battlefield. We also obviously will will play uh, media on the battlefield, non-governmental organizations and international government organizations around the area. And then we have a little bit of infrastructure as well, which we can talk about at some point in terms of information space. Is there a big exercise that's kind of typical of a a rotation? And I'm assuming that a JRTC rotation is similar to NTC is about 12 to 14 days. But is there a a typical, and I know it's based on the commander coming to and the training objectives, but is there a typical operation, a major operation like an NTC, which is a brigade attack? And I know that you might not have the training for that, but they do a brigade attack of a urban a city, basically the city of Rajesh. Is there a similar like big operation that usually happens during the rotation? Yeah, and it's, and it's been a, a couple of years since I was a brigade commander at the National Training Center. But, uh, you know, Rajesh is, is a very large urban area as well. And, and I remember at the time that was really, it was a brigade operation, but it typically, at least when we did it, involved a battalion or a battalion plus when you got into reserve size forces. I think we're similar here, although again, I, I don't think the sheer building numbers may approach the same size, but again, different terrain. And so typically the entire brigade at one point or other in the 14-day force-on-force rotation, much like NTC, in fact, it's the exact same number of days, will be called upon to employ the entire brigade to seize or secure either Dar Alam or Shugart Gordon or both. And I think typically we take advantage of the IBCT's strengths. And so very oftentimes that that may not be necessarily the entire brigade that's attacking into the physical boundaries of Shugart Gordon or Dar Alam. But the brigade, the entire brigade may be necessary to establish the maneuverability, the mobility for the brigade to get into that area. So one battalion may be called upon just to be able to open a route along a restrictive area for follow-on forces to help enable and support the attack on Shugart Gordon or Dar Alam. I have, though, seen uh, at Dar Alam, which is a little bit more open, 
Uh, I have seen up to two battalions simultaneously in a brigade minus attack on the Dorlam area. And so almost all BCTs will be challenged either through ground maneuver with combination or without combination of an air assault to employ large portions of the brigade in a deliberate attack that is a brigade operation, even if, again, the entire brigade isn't on the X of Shugart Gordon, to either deal with enemy forces in and around Shugart Gordon or Dar Alam, if that answers the question. Absolutely. And I had the same conversation with NTC about the sheer amount of force it takes to do an operation. If you calculate the isolating force, the shaping operations, you're getting well beyond even a brigade. And in urban terrain, according to our own doctrine, it takes three to five times the amount of force to accomplish the same mission in open terrain as it does in urban terrain, which sounds like it makes sense. But until you actually see it physically with real people on the ground, you quickly see how many troops it takes, even if the terrain isn't as big as you might imagine in your mind. So that's great, sir. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that, that that operation happens every rotation. So I'd like to dig into that operation. What type of enemy forces being represented on the objective? And is it what I would consider a non-permissive environment? Basically, the enemy controls the entire urban area and the attacking force that is trying to seize or clear it has to penetrate it, clear it. Is that how it works? It's absolutely almost always a non-permissive area. And I think in this, I'll, I'll try to pepper in here. I know we'll get to them more deliberately, but I will try to pepper in a couple of things that we notice uh, from time to time for, for the listeners. Y- you know, number one is, of course, the, the more time uh, that you give the enemy to prepare, especially a good practiced enemy like Geronimo or, you know, one four at JMRC and Black Horse out at NTC, they will take every advantage of that. And so if you allow them to establish a disruption zone, that disruption zone will expand until it makes contact with your forward uh, line of troops. And so initially what you may see is a peer force, typically a mechanized or, or infantry reinforced with armor and infantry fighting vehicles as the defensive force of the uh, of either Shugart Gordon or Dar Alam. But if you're not careful and you don't secure the key terrain, the enemy will then start to employ similar type forces forward. Uh, and what you'll start to lose is you'll start to lose the mobility along the approaches to that route. And so your your operation can become more and more complex. So what, what is the planned amount of time that a unit, a rotating unit will get for this, this mission, basically to seize or secure one of the urban sites? Do they kind of get that mission along the rotation and then give are given a certain amount of time or it's kind of on them, like you said, if they let it drag out, then it's the worst it is on them. Yeah, well, that's a great question. And, and, I, and I hate to give you, it depends answers, but I, I think typically it can be three to three to five days is probably about the window, depending on where it falls uh, in the rotation and to your point in the scenario. We set a lot of initial pieces, but we really do let the training unit fight against a, a thinking, breathing opposition force that I, at least as the commander of operations group, don't dictate how they do things any more than their initial task and purpose against the brigade. And so what you may see is you may, for example, in more of a five days to plan to your question, that may involve, you can attack Shugart Gordon or Dar Alam anytime within that five-day period. And, and oh, by the way, you have necess- you don't necessarily have a limit of advance and, and you can do lots of shaping operations or supporting or have supporting efforts that help set the conditions for some final attack to clear it or seize it or secure it, depending on the tactical task. You may then also have fewer days. So let's say the the three-day model where the last battle ended, where the brigade is already in a position for the next logical step 
to be a more rapid attack on on either of those places. But again, it, you do have to think through the entire 14 days of your operations in what we call AO Bear, because again, we will not give the op for anything. We will not restrict the rotational training unit much at all. We may have some boundaries that help keep the brigade focused the way the division wants them to. And again, this is just so that they don't get pulled off track by thinking, for example, the enemy is going to come from a direction that doesn't quite make sense in the overall larger picture. Because what we're really trying to paint more and more here is this divisional or core area of operations where there's other BCTs around them. They're not a brigade combat team in isolation. Makes a lot of sense. I know the planning is condensed, of course, because you know we all want more time to train, but it is a limited amount of time that they have at JRTC. And we just had General Noble on the podcast show, we're talking about the operation for the liberation of Mosul, and they were planning contingency operations 12 months in advance, and you could do a lot more with a lot more time to plan. But so in planning this operation, this attack of, let's say, Shugart Gordon, what do you see in planning or, or what are you looking for, especially from the brigade staff and the, the commanders in planning this type of operation? So I, I think there, there's many things. Uh, and so, you know, much like an onion, I'll, I'll I'll try to answer a few things, and and I don't at all mind if you press me on specifics in some area. But I think at the brigade level, when we are confronted with one of these urban operations, I I think, to your point earlier, first, we have to really understand what's the enemy look like in there uh, in terms of disposition composition, and how do we think the enemy is going to defend, and what combat power do we actually think it's going to require to accomplish the tactical task. And then I think once the brigade does that, that is something really for the subordinate units where we've given those specific maneuver tactical tasks uh, to work with their resources. And then I would encourage the brigade to think about, number one, how are we going to put those final forces into their assault position. So if there's some bit of maneuver, where do we think the actual probable line of contact is going to be? And how can we as the brigade establish a brigade scheme of maneuver and tasks to supporting efforts to enable those those attacking forces, you know, that final force into those urban areas to get to their assault positions when the battle then becomes theirs. And then the second thing is how do we set conditions? And most importantly, how do we set conditions, I believe, with fires? Again, we're a decisive action environment here. We're going against a pure threat. There are likely civilians on the battlefield. We still are under the laws of armed conflict, but we have to also understand that fundamentally our job as an infantry brigade combat team is not to feed our infantrymen into the meat grinder of an urban area without doing the required preparations. And that largely is going to be accomplished by your fires plan. And I'll, I'll say fires plan because it may in, involve surface-to-surface fires or air-to-surface fires. It also may involve non-lethal fires. So how do we set conditions as a brigade? And at what point are we now communicating with our subordinate forces and saying, okay, we believe we've met the, the conditions to cross and, and depart from our assault positions and begin the attack at your subordinate level? You know, So now we're really talking the battalions and the companies uh, starting to position their forces. And then I think what the brigade has to very quickly then transition to, I would say, is sort of the back end of that maneuver. What is our reserve force planning that we have for this? How will we and what is the plan and what are the criteria and the planning priorities for the reserve force that perhaps will either follow and assume or follow and support or in some other cases take on their own tactical task based on what we thought the enemy can do in a reaction to our attack on those areas. Oh, so that's great. 
I'd actually like to circle back to fires because I, I think that's such an important aspect of setting the condition. And, and if you look at any, even the most recent urban battles, the amount of artillery, aerial, you know, hellfires, air support that we'll use in support of ground maneuver, whether dynamic strikes or pre-planned strikes and the difficulty of that in the urban terrain when, let's be honest, you can't see inside of buildings and we're working on that kind of as a combat capability. But right now, when the fire plans get pushed together, they have to, of course, like you said, identify protected buildings and protected populations. So do units struggle with that in the planning of this attack or it varies between different units? Well, I think the first thing is that, you know, it is worth units making sure that they understand the chairman's instruction and how we have written things for, for lack of a better way of describing it, collateral damage, civilian casualties. We have many of us become accustomed to specific environments with specific rules of engagement, which tie target engagement authorities to specific positions or specific ranks. And there's a more fundamental thing that I think units are now starting to grapple with and understand. And it really does, again, not to oversimplify, bring us back to the standards of legitimate military target, appropriate uh, use of force in terms of proportionality. And so those are good things to have discussions on in our, in our staff exercises as we plan, particularly urban operations where, unfortunately, and it, and it is unfortunate, we, we will not likely be able to avoid civilian casualties in their entirety because our enemies, even though peers, will still likely take advantage of the cover and the concealment that they get from urban operations. And, and it's one of those reasons why years ago, our doctrine really used to tell us to avoid those areas because we understood the obstacles that those could present. But avoiding them is not necessarily going to be an option. And so then what I do see units wrestle with is, okay, first of all, how do I locate known or suspected enemy positions? And based on that, how does that go into the evaluation of whether I now have a legitimate military target that will be an acceptable use of force and that I can proportionally attack to set the conditions? And to use just a basic example, my personal rule of thumb is if I see armored vehicles in an urban environment and I have precision munitions, whether those are cannon delivered or some other means, I would continue to use that until I did not see another armored vehicle or another armored capability because infantry does not mix well with well-positioned armor inside an urban area. Yeah, absolutely, sir. Actually, one thing that I, I was really surprised to see when I, I went out last year and visit, visited the attack to Regis and I was sitting with the cog during the attack, the use of smoke fires. And he said that, you know, unfortunately, sometimes they see commanders at different levels coming through on this operation, this urban terrain operation, self-imposing rules of engagement that either they had during their rotations in Afghanistan and Iraq or just as a profession where, like you just said, I mean, there's a legitimate target in urban terrain, but there's self-imposing rules on themselves that weren't established by the, the date environment or any of the guidance they were given. Have you seen that? We see that quite a bit, although I, I do think units are, are getting better. And I think we've got to be careful with our language. And so we've really worked on that here at JRTC when we give the division order and we discuss rules of engagement because positive identification is still a requirement. But oftentimes when we use that term, people either go back to what they experienced or what they heard of ba about in COIN and really infer an overly restrictive rule of engagement associated just with that term. 
And so we really do like to talk in terms of legitimate military target. We do like to talk about engagement criteria and and really what is the posture that we're going to be in. I mean, we all grew up with the, you know, the red, white, you know, the free hold, you know, type and tight postures. And I think these have a place in decisive action as we go forward, because again, if any military target is legitimate, we may not have, uh, if we don't have some of those proportionality concerns based on the threat and based on the exigency of that target, meaning that objective, right? Not that target in a, again, a coin sense, then we that might lead us in a different way. Now, I'm also not saying that a brigade commander or even a battalion or company commander can impose something more restrictive than the laws of war based on the understanding of the environment. And certainly even in decisive action, we may have to make some of those decisions at echelon, different echelons of command. But there's nothing inherently that necessarily restricts us from attacking an urban area against a, a peer threat when the objective is against a legitimate military target the way we did COIN. Because again, much of what we did in COIN wasn't because of laws of war. It was because what we thought the impact of the mission would be if we were overly permissive in our use of fires. Yes, sir. And I know it's at no sense an easy task and I've seen an inordinate amount of work being done to ensure we can have the most lethal capability possible within all laws of war. And like you said, in accordance with the mission and the objectives, the amount of intelligence we've increased. And I think the the podcast we did with General Noble and the amount of work that was done, even in pattern of life analysis prior to strike requests, the whole gamut is actually pretty amazing just to me, even as a scholar of urban warfare. I'll give you an example, you know, which may paint it from the other side of the discussion. The only time in two years where, because I I do role play the 21st Infantry Division commander here, the only time that I really took issue with with a brigade action as it related to this topic is they had really no intelligence whatsoever of enemy in an urban area. And that urban area was something they were tasked with securing and they did preparatory fires. And I think because we had never established the presence of a known or even suspected enemy target, it was really just based upon a, if I was the enemy, I would occupy this town. That was problematic. And I was glad that that occurred here as a learning moment at a combat training center. But short of that, I've really not had anybody default to being overly aggressive in terms of the, the laws of war. And that's great to hear. I and mean, that's a point of learning the lessons there. I mean, there is a question of, you know, I'm, a, I'm an advocate for more urban training. And if we've established a system where you can only really be presented with these type of lessons at a major combat training center, I think we could and are trying to do more in that realm to push these tough decisions and to learn from those lessons. No, exactly. Because I, I do think, you know, oftentimes... Our job as commanders is to make the least bad decision as well. Now, I'm, I'm not saying to make the easy, wrong, ethically against laws of war decision, but sometimes we're presented with two courses of action, neither of which is particularly palatable. And I think those are important dilemmas, tactical dilemmas to be able to experience uh, here at training. Where I'd also take this conversation, though, to something you said is obviously we have got to continue training in our urban areas because we know so much of the world is going to be covered by inhabited places. I do think at the same time, though, what I do observe here is that also sometimes causes us to not appreciate the significance of key terrain that is not urban, key intersections, key crossing points, key places of observation. So many times when we're looking to help our future operations, 
we may default to something that is urban when really it's appropriate to isolate that. The key terrain that we need is something that is more natural obstacle or terrain based. The second thing that I think is important for us, even though we, we had this discussion with fires, is how do we use our weapon systems in the urban area? Again, I think sometimes we default to the infantry squad. We default at most to the machine gun teams. How do we use our AT weapons and some of the munitions we've been given for those weapons to enable us in urban terrain? How do we use our armored formations if we do possess even limited armored assets uh, within an IBCT based on task organization? What I would tell you is I've seen a few, and unfortunately just a few, as opposed to using, for example, tanks as a following support force, they have actually been a great force sometimes depending on the threat. Because again, starting with what's the enemy, the enemy has nothing to deal with a tank, then many times the only enemy real option when confronted with them is to withdraw. And so and I've seen and so I've seen that too many times we relegate those to support by fire positions at best. And that's if they're not reserved. And of course, I'm not necessarily suggesting that we clear buildings with a tank. But sometimes if we know that there's an enemy position in a building, the easiest way to eliminate or destroy that enemy is with a main gun round or with higher caliber machine guns or with the automatic fire that we can generate from 25 millimeter or 30 millimeter on some of our infantry fighting vehicles. You're singing my songs here. It's not only that this fight is a combined arms fight and you have to bring all the capabilities you have. And that's kind of the lessons that a lot of people will get, whether it's using your mobile protective firepower to get you up to the objective or to the location that you're engaging, or the fact that it is really hard to replicate this, especially high intensity fight in urban terrain, just based on battle simulations to replicate such as a house, which we've seen in almost every major battle like this in history, that you're not going to stack an infantry squad on the outside of and enter it because it's basically a bunker with inside of a bunker, you have to bring up some other capability, whether that's backing up and calling in an artillery strike on a legitimate enemy stronghold or strong point, or bringing up your mobile protective firepower, which is very historical and very recent, to give you either a concrete penetrating round or just a mobile protective firepower to get into the breach. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And then you mentioned smoke earlier, and, and, and I think Mike uh, Simmering said the same thing. I mean, we underappreciate how much time it's going to take to do some of the things that we're inherently taught require suppression obscuration. And so the first point is, do we have, again, that good fires plan? And now perhaps it is a brigade plan because it's going to take a lot of brigade assets to be able to obscure a larger formation that is trying to breach onto an urban area. And then we underappreciate how much handheld smoke. So obviously there's things in between the two I just described when you're talking about battalion assets, mortars, et cetera. But then we underappreciate how much handheld smoke we're going to need as we move from building to building. And perhaps, you know, we go within larger type buildings. This is what I, why I love my job and looking at historical examples of these exact operations where how much we've either trained or de-organized our smoke capabilities. You know, mechanized forces sometimes have smoke capabilities that light forces might not, but it's an understanding that you want to make it so the enemy can't see you, that I think that you only get to learn every once in a while when you face a big urban training exercise. Well, and I think tactics don't necessarily go away. They just are, are modified over time. And so to your point, I too learned that based on environments, uh, we really had to be worried about a couple of things. One, 
we did have to worry about civilians on the battlefield. And, and I think we still have to think about that. And then we also understood that we have to worry about building construction. We've gotten much smarter in terms of hot walls and building construction and, and what they can withstand. And where do we create our own risk to the force? Where Do we understand our own surface danger zones and how we can use buildings of different construction that either may modify them or, or not modify those surface danger zones at all? No, for sure. There's planning for the operation and making sure to use all your capabilities that you have on hand. I love the story of uh, using your what armor you do have and the enemy leaving. I think we heard something similar on in some of the battles of Iraq where the intense information operation campaign prior to the attack caused one enemy just to vacate the city and there was not a round fired. That's so important. But could we talk through kind of actions on the objective and some of the things that you see? There's plenty at NTC of like, hey, the combined arms breach is always a struggle. Are there things you see at GRTC in this attack of an urban terrain that kind of inaction on the objective becomes not a trend, but something you see often? Yeah, I think, you know, probably the number one trend as I've watched some of these major attacks is that first understanding where the line of contact is going to be. And so do I appreciate at what point I am going to be first under enemy observation? And then when I am going to potentially, because I'm under enemy observation, be under indirect fire? And then when am I going to be under direct fire? And have I accounted for that in my tactical plan? And then it goes back to what I said on the smoke. Have I then understood how long it was going to take me? For example, let's say I can move into the assault position with concealment, which many times can happen depending on our security, depending on our, our supporting efforts that help us do that. But now do I understand how long it's going to take me from the moment I want to come out of that assault position? Clearly, I've probably started to suppress and obscure before I do that all the way to the point that I can establish the foothold or at least get forces into that foothold. And that's oftentimes where I see units struggle and we lose an awful lot of combat power. The first comes from not understanding that amount of time that it's going to take. And I think that it can easily take 30 minutes not having done it. I'm sure you remember this as well. does not feel that long, but it many times is that long when you're trying to do that, particularly these larger type attacks. And then I think the second thing is, have we really made our folks that help us understand the terrain earn their pay? You know, whether that's at the brigade level with our terrain teams, do we really understand where the cover and concealment should be to enable that maneuver between the assault position through the breach to the foothold, help us really understand where the best point of breach is? Have we then done the reconnaissance to confirm that? Have we also ensured that we've planned to get the support by fire into position? And many times we haven't. And so it sounds like we've planned a deliberate attack because we've said all the right things. We've said we're going to come out of the assault position. We're going to initiate suppression and obscuration, establish support by fire, continue suppression and obscuration. Then we're going to breach. Then we're going to establish the foothold. But all of the detailed planning in there that oftentimes comes out of the war game, maybe the most important step. A lot of that is lost. And so what we wind up doing is we turn a deliberate attack once we come out of the assault position into a hasty attack. And of course, it's never going to go exactly the way we planned it. So I'm not saying we won't have to adjust. We don't need to stay flexible. But many times I'll see things like trying to find the point of breach because the leader didn't do that critical task of identifying it with his or her own eyes? And then do we make sure that the first folks through the breach understood where the foothold was and that we don't struggle through the breach and then perhaps 
wander around under fire, which doesn't look a whole lot like wandering. It looks a lot more like, you know, stressfully trying to figure out where we're supposed to go. Uh, and, and then do we understand then once we establish the foothold, the next steps and how we're going to control our maneuver throughout the urban area. Do you think that most units are able to bring the combat capabilities that they have available within their unit to bear in this dense urban fight? I think we struggle to mass our artillery or our surface to fire artillery and mortars to have the effect that we need. And so that mass may be ensuring that we've got the collection to enable precision fires, whether that's you know someone breathing in an observation position or, or something flown or some other means. And then if we don't have precision fires, bringing that mass to bear. And then again, I, I mentioned smoke. I, I often don't see us using all of the smoke that we need. And then I don't see us necessarily using the armor we're giving, the MPF we're given, the infantry fighting vehicles we're given. Almost every IBCT has gun trucks that can either be tow 50 cal Mark 19. And of course, at the CTCs, it's difficult to replicate the Mark 19. And we're working on making that better because that is a huge capability that we need to understand in an urban area. So I don't blame the units for not necessarily wrestling with that. So I don't often see that. And I think it's worth saying that, you know, this is hard stuff. So I don't, I don't think a unit by any means is bad for, for struggling with this. I mean, even if we train it to a very high standard, I think urban operations are very difficult when you change the environment, you change the objective. It's almost as if you have to kind of relearn it. And if you don't have good practiced drills, it can be hard for you to adapt. And that's why we do it here, because it is so difficult. I actually have written a paper that says it's the hardest environment on the planet. That's arguable based on the definition of hard, whether you know high altitude or whatever, but based on the terrain, the political implications, the population, the complexity of the physical terrain, it is the hardest. And why I'm happy to see that it is replicated in all of our combat training centers. My last question, I know at JRTC, at, at all the CTCs, we have to train the units, maximize the time they're there, and we have to train them for multiple environments. Although I'm a big advocate of creating an urban combat training center where you would live in it, fight from it for 14 days straight in all the aspects of shoot, move, communicate, adapt, survive in urban terrain. But that's just not what we have. In the JRTC, you have to replicate other challenges in different environments. But if you could change an aspect of the urban element of JRTC, what would it be? I think one of the things that we continue to try to improve is, and you mentioned this or at least alluded to it earlier, is the the destruction and the sprawl in that way. I don't mean the urban sprawl, although we're working on that. We're going to add a lot more. and We've already started to, to these uh, urban areas, but we used to have a lot more urban areas that already had the destruction built into the urban structures themselves. And, and I think that's important because it, in many cases, you know, we may be clearing a, a destroyed building that the enemy after it was destroyed, is, is able to occupy and, and have some cover. That's not necessarily going to be going down hallways and rooms because it, it may already have that those battlefield effects that we don't experience. So I think we're working very hard here at JRTC to not only try to present the plans of different types of areas, but to present different challenges within those buildings themselves. And then understand how do we replicate battlefield effects better. And so I think one of the things we've really been thinking about is, for example, how do we, when we destroy building 27, this rotation, 
how do we replicate that for the rotational training unit so they get the benefit of some of that good work we're saying should go into shaping that objective. We do have some great battlefield effects. I can employ lots of explosions, lots of smoke in the area that's generated by the sheer destruction that's going on. But as you know, I I can't necessarily uh, destroy Building 27, rebuild it three days later for the next battalion or the next brigade that's coming through. And, And so I don't think we fully appreciate some of the carnage by the time we actually begin the assault. How do we, when we're trying to control the action, that was Alpha Company that called that in, right? Now Bravo Company's coming in and they want to use that building for for cover because they see a building. They don't necessarily notice that it has the the orange tape or the even what I've tried to do is is have some kind of uh, miles like signature going off, but in the heat of of what they're doing they, they don't see that. So the physical visual cue after the event, right? After the explosion, after we destroy the enemy in there, which I can easily do, that's a little bit more problematic to create. Uh, for the forces that don't see it exactly when it happens, if if that answers your question, no, a hundred percent, I and I hundred percent agree with you. Just and based from historical battles, it's really hard to replicate the rubbleizing that preparatory fires will do, and that may alter your plan of action, such as Stalingrad, where the Luftwaffe and preparatory fire took out eighty percent of the buildings and created so much rubble that the armor could not be engaged. It could not be used in the initial battle. And that's one of the reasons why it was so brutal. That's such a challenge, like you said. And turned it even even more into an infantry haven. Yeah, I mean, and we've seen that where in the fight from Mosul, you strike a building. Uh, I think your General Talon said this. I, he said a, he couldn't create a better bomb-proof bunker for the enemy other than when we destroy a building and they either are in the subterranean element and come back up. Um, and now they have a con- you know, a, a munition-proof bunker that they can then fight from and that second third order effects of your your operations will present itself in urban terrain very quickly yeah and then sometimes we underappreciate the reverse i mean i love to tell people the best place to go and i'm sure you've been there is point du hawk and walk around there and see all of the craters from 76 years ago i guess right now but what's still standing is the bunkers <laughs> so really the last question the subterranean aspect how much does that come into play in your two major objectives? So we, we do have the ability, as I said, for underground in those uh, larger areas. And then really at JRTC, uh, I want to say we've got seven total underground capable areas. Where I think we fall short is really where we're going with subterranean, where you really need to employ special equipment, where they're very complex structures that are underground and really eat up you know, combat power. So they usually consist of tunnels. They usually consist of maybe one or two rooms that are underneath uh, the objectives. They're not very complex uh, subterranean environments. They're not the types of things where you have to start to consider how you're breathing and how you're seeing and how you're clearing those of explosives and things like that, which may impact your operations. So we're going that direction. Uh, And right now, most brigade combat teams uh, do not have the special equipment. And so even if we went there right now, most brigades would not be equipped to be able to operate in those environments. But we recognize we need to do better. And of course, we want to be ahead of that so that as more brigades are trained and that becomes much more linked to their metal tasks, they absolutely must be able to do that at a CTC because fundamentally, we want the CTCs to be the place we can do what you can't do at home station. And so we always have to improve and we are always doing that after every rotation, trying to figure out what we need to 
get better, how we need to adapt to enable multi-domain operations, and a variety of other things that we see are on the horizon here. Well, sir, I really appreciate your time and it's been an absolute pleasure. I love the topic. Love hearing about the tough, realistic training that's happening at JRTC. No, again, thanks so much uh, for having me. I, I really appreciate any way that we can also help get out you know, our message, some things that, that we see that units uh, might want to do better. And, and by all means, no one will learn everything from necessarily living, uh, listening to the podcast, but I encourage anybody to contact us directly and have the more personal conversations about exactly what they're thinking about. Because ultimately, our, our job's to help units come here and succeed. It, it's not to come here and lose. It's to come here and succeed. We'll make that difficult, but we don't get paid any extra uh, because a unit loses to the op for. In fact, I would argue we get a great sense of accomplishment when a unit gets here and does some things right. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out Individualized other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.